Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day to our fathers out there. I would invite you uh, to open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're uh, beginning chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1003. 1003. Now, one of the major questions that we face as we come to the Word of God as Christians is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How much of the Old Testament is still relevant for us today, and how much is made obsolete by the new and fuller revelation of God's work in Christ? It's a question that the church has been wrestling with since the very foundation of the church. Early on in church history, there were those who believed that we should just completely abandon the Old Testament. Marcion is a, was a church leader in the early 2nd century who advocated just this. He said that the church should get rid of the Old Testament and the Old Testament God and many of the New Testament writings that seem to be too highly influenced by the Old Testament. Marcion uh, was declared a heretic for his teaching, but that conflict continues, and the central question of the relationship between the Old and New Testament remains to this day. The way that we talk about this debate is that between continuity and discontinuity, right? How much of the Old Testament continues into the New and how much does not? For example, all Orthodox Christians would agree that the God revealed in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. There is continuity. On the other hand, Orthodox Christians agree that the command to eat a kosher diet has ended. There are specific commands in the New Testament say that we do not have to eat a kosher diet, and therefore there is discontinuity. However, there are many things that fall outside of these obvious examples. In modern days, the divide between continuity and discontinuity within the evangelical church is most clearly seen in the difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology. Covenant theology, to which we hold as a church, sees more continuity than our dispensational brothers. And this has many effects on our worship and our practice. For example, we practice covenant baptism, the baptism of infants. We believe that the continuity between the Old Testament rite of circumcision given to infants as a sign of entrance into the covenant means that we should give the New Testament sign of the covenant baptism to our infants. We also believe in what is called the third use of the law. That is, the law of God is a positive guide for Christian living. Our belief in the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament also means that we spend much time teaching and preaching the Old Testament because we believe that it is not a secondary witness to the gospel, but rather that the book of Numbers is propounding the exact same gospel as the book of Romans. We believe that Old Testament believers were saved the same way that we are today, by faith in God's Messiah. 
And we believe that the church is the continuation of God's people, Israel. Not replacing Israel, but rather the flowering and expansion of Israel. By faith, Christians are the sons of Abraham. Dispensational theology, on the other hand, sees more discontinuity. Therefore, they would reject infant baptism, see less application for the Old Testament law, preach the Old Testament far less. They would argue that under the old dispensation, people related to God through the law and not through grace as we do today. And they would hold that Israel and the church are two distinct entities of which the Lord will deal differently in the end times. Now, this is a long way of getting to the point of our passage for this morning. As we've gone through the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews, we've seen that the author spends much time rooting his teaching in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. He begins by speaking of Jesus as a better messenger than the angels, a better prophet than Moses, a better Savior than Joshua. But it's important that we don't miss this point. Jesus isn't better because he is different as such, but rather because he is ideal. The angels and Moses and Joshua were all doing what God commanded them to do. They were fulfilling the offices that God had given them as intended. But Jesus comes and he fulfills the office of messenger, of prophet, of savior better He is better than Moses, but he is still a prophet. He is better than Joshua, but he is still a savior. And as we go forward in our text, we will see that he is a better priest than Aaron, but he is still fulfilling the same office that we see in the Old Testament, the office of a priest. The roles and offices of the Old Testament are not put aside at the coming of Christ. Rather, they are fulfilled by Christ. The author to the Hebrews doesn't argue that the Old Testament is done away with. Hey, now that Jesus has come, we don't have to worry about all the Old Testament offices. We don't have to worry about prophets and priests and kings. We have something new. We have Jesus. No, his argument is that Jesus has come as the ideal prophet, as the ideal king, and in our text, the ideal priest. And this is why the author does not jump immediately to Jesus in his work without first rooting it in the history of the offices of the Old Testament. Because he must first show that the essential elements that make a priest are now fulfilled in the true and perfect priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he, Jesus, fulfills the office of a priest on our behalf, just as the sons of Aaron did for the people of God in the Old Testament. But he does it not only as a priest, but as the ideal priest. That is, Jesus is the better priest. So hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Every high priest chosen from among men 
is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you now in this time and we pray that you would guide us and lead us and teach us from your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we look to your word, we would understand how we might rightly interpret these words, that we might truly see Christ and him crucified for us, and that we might trust in the sacrifice that he has made, even his own body and blood given for us. May they, those who are here this day who trust in Christ be strengthened in their faith. Lord, and might this be the day when those who do not know Christ would be born anew through the preaching of your word. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, as we come to the beginning of chapter 5, what we see is the outlining of the purpose and work of a priest in the Old Testament. Now, as we look through the Word of God, and in particular what is said here in our passage, we see that a priest was a man chosen by God to act on behalf of his people to offer sacrifices to remove the guilt of of sin. These are the three essential elements of a priest that we see reflected here. He is from the people, he sympathizes with the people, and he is appointed by God. Now, first, a priest is from the people. Look at verse 1 again. It says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, rather conspicuously, we see that word men show up twice in our text. They are chosen from among men and they act on behalf of men. Now, the underlying Greek word is the general idea of humanity, not male in particular. And the point is, is that the priest must be a human being. Now, this seems rather mundane of a qualification. A priest has to be a human being. We need a warm body in here to do the work. Who else might we pick than a human being? Well, maybe we could say an angel would act as an intermediary or an idol or some sort of an animal. Maybe God himself could be the intermediary, the priest for the people. 
And yet none of these other beings could fulfill the purpose of a priest because a priest must be a human being because he is acting on behalf of the human race. This is the same reason why a congressional representative is supposed to be a resident of the state and the district they represent. Why? Well, how can Virginia claim to have a representative in Congress if their delegate comes from somewhere like, say, New Mexico? How could such a man bring the needs of our region to the federal stage in a genuine manner? Right? He knows Mesa Verde, but he doesn't know Buena Vista. A priest is to, as the verse says, act on behalf of men. And therefore, the priest had to be a human being, one in flesh and blood. And as a man, the priest must offer sacrifices for sin, because sin is a human problem. Sin is what separated humanity from God, and therefore the priest must be a human who offers to God a sacrifice on behalf of other human beings. The Bible teaches us that God deals with humanity through representatives. And it is the actions of these representatives that determine our blessing or our curse. The first representative of the human race was Adam. And acting on his own behalf and on behalf of all of humanity, Adam sinned. And that sin spread to all of humanity. In the Old Testament, when a king would act righteously, the people were blessed, and when he acted wickedly, they were cursed. When a priest offered a sacrifice, he did it to cleanse his own sin, but even more to cleanse the sins of the people that he represented. And the gospel message is predicated on this principle of representation, what some theologians call federal headship. Adam sinned, and therefore all of his children are guilty in him. He was our representative. He was our delegate. And he failed. And through the trespass of Adam, all human beings are born guilty sinners. And you might object and say, well, that doesn't sound just. I don't think God should judge me according to the actions of someone who lived thousands and thousands of years ago and I had no ability to do anything about it. I would like to represent myself. Well, good luck with that. Adam was created without sin. He was placed in an idyllic situation. He was in Eden itself. And he succumbed. If any of us had a chance of representing ourselves or the human race, it was Adam. And he fell. Do you think you who are surrounded by sin and born in sin would fare any better? Do you really want to represent yourself? Nevertheless, God in his grace sent another representative. Another who could act on our behalf, even His Son, Jesus Christ. For He came to be our representative before God. To do what Adam did not do. To do what we could not do. To obey fully. To be without sin. And to win for His people the reward of heaven by His works of righteousness. And to offer Himself as a sacrifice to sin. 
This is the gospel. Jesus Christ has earned salvation for his people through his life of obedience, through his sacrificial death, through his victorious resurrection. But it means nothing if he is not a human being. If he did not come from among men. If Jesus Christ is anything other than fully human, then his obedience, his representation doesn't count for us human beings. His death doesn't cleanse us. His resurrection doesn't raise us to new and everlasting life. And therefore, to trust in Christ... We must trust in the full humanity of Jesus Christ. We must believe that he was a man and not a superman. That his conception was a true conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. That his soul was a true human soul. It is a mystery, but it is central to the gospel. If Jesus is to be a priest who can represent humanity by making sacrifices for sin, then he must be one of us. And to be one of us, the divine Son of God had to take to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. His divinity could not invade or take over or mix with his humanity. All of the actions he performed were human actions. All of his thoughts were human thoughts. All of his desires were human desires. All of his pain was human pain. All of his blood was human blood. Why? Because if his actions were not human actions, then we cannot claim them as our actions. If his obedience didn't come from a human heart, then our hearts have not been renewed. If his blood is not human blood, then it doesn't pay for human sin. And if his body is not a human body, then we have no hope that our lowly broken bodies will one day be raised up in glory. But Christ is our priest. He is our representative. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was descended from David according to the flesh. And as we learned a few months earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, He was made like His brothers in every respect. Why? So that He might become the merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Every high priest must be a human being. And because Jesus has full humanity, we must trust Him as our priest. Now the second essential aspect of being a priest is sympathy for weakness. The priest must not merely be a human, but a human who will deal kindly with a needy people. Look at verses 2 through 3. There we read as the author continues to speak of the Old Testament office of priest. And specifically the, the priest from the line of Aaron. It says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Again, he's talking about the, the, the priest from the line of Aaron. That they can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. 
You see, it was imperative that the priest dealt gently with the people. The word translated gently means something along the lines of finding a mean between indifference on the one hand and extreme anger on the other side, right? A priest was to see the sin of the people and feel compassion towards the ignorant and wayward people. To see them as sheep without a shepherd. To long to see them reconciled to God and released from the bondage to sin. You see, the role of the priest when they saw a sinful people couldn't be one where they waved their finger at them and say, tisk, 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 you have no right to come before God. But rather, to have compassion that a sinful, wayward people should be reconciled unto God. The priest couldn't be an overly rigid bureaucrat fulfilling a function without a heart or the purpose behind the function. I have a family member who moved from the Seattle area in Washington State a few years back to South Carolina, just outside of Columbia and Lexington. And he had lived in Washington State his whole life, and I wondered how this transition was going. And so I asked him, how are things going? And he's like, man, I love it in the South. And then he proceeded to give me an example of why he loved living in South Carolina. And it wasn't the weather, and it wasn't the proximity to the beach. It wasn't the low cost of living or the friendly Southern hospitality. Rather, he told me about his garbage men. He said, this is just an example, but in Washington, at least in the neighborhood where he lived, if you put your garbage cans out and the lid was ajar by half an inch, the garbage men would not pick it up. You've overfilled your allotted amount of garbage and therefore your garbage will not be hauled away this week. And therefore what happened? Garbage was dumped all over the place. At the end of cul-de-sacs were mattresses and old stoves and refrigerators. People had to get rid of their garbage somehow, so they just throw it on empty lots. On the other hand, as he be- continued to tell the story, in South Carolina, he could put anything on the side of the road. Come trash day, they would haul it away. Old stoves and mattresses, piles of garbage or paint cans, it didn't matter whatever they put out there, they would take it away. And he summed it up saying, in Washington, the garbage men believed their job was to enforce the rules. And in South Carolina, the garbage men believed their job was to pick up garbage. (laughs) And that's the point. The priest was not there to berate the people for their ignorant, wayward sins. They were not there to find technicalities for why they could not offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. You can't have your sin atoned for because you're a sinner. Rather, their job was to deal with sin with compassion. This was the very reason they exist, to deal with the garbage of human transgression. To see that it was borne away by blood sacrifice. To represent the people and carry them symbolically into the very presence of God. And therefore they had to understand why they were there. 
They were there because of the weakness of the people. And therefore, they had to be weak and represent the people before God in their weakness. Now, a display of this was the requirement that the priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself and his family prior to offering a sacrifice for all the people. He needed cleansing as much as they did. This need to sympathize is why self-righteousness is such a poison among God's people. To believe that you are above the weakness of others and to deem some worthy of forgiveness and others unworthy is to deny your own need for cleansing. We are all sinners. We are all weak and we are all in need of God's grace. But how then could Christ fulfill this role of a priest? For he is not a sinner. How can he show understanding and compassion and sympathy towards our waywardness when he himself never sinned? Well, this is what we touched on last week. If you look up at verse 15 of chapter 4, it says, it addresses this specifically, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, Jesus can sympathize. He can understand our weakness because He was made weak. He was placed under the burden of temptation. But unlike us, He never gave in to the temptation. He knew what it was to carry the full weight of this burden. And therefore, he sympathizes with us who are tempted each day. The clearest example of this theological truth is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Following his baptism, he was led into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, the text says something very surprising He was hungry, he was weak. And the devil came and tempted him three times. He tempted him to doubt God, to test God, to go against God's plan. But Jesus did not fail. He was tempted, but he overcame that temptation and did not give in to sin. And therefore, we can trust him to represent us as our priest because he knows what it is to be weak. He knows what it is to overcome this weakness. As the opening verse of the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, summarizes well. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. We can trust Jesus as our priest because He knows our weakness and intercedes on our behalf. He came for the sick and not the healthy. He came to be a priest for the sinner and not for the righteous. He is not an overly rigid bureaucrat saying, tisk, tisk to you. As a priest, his job is to remove sin, to cleanse us from sin. And therefore, we who are full of sin and brokenness must not run away from Him fearing His judgment, but rather we must run to Him knowing that He will surely cleanse us of all of our sin because He is a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. You see, Jesus fulfills the office of a priest because of His full humanity, because of his interceding weakness, 
And the final thing that we see is that we can trust Jesus as our priest. That is, our representative to offer a sacrifice for sin because of His divine appointment. Look down at verse 4. There we read of this final requirement of the Old Testament priest. It says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. This is going to be a very important concept going forward and one that the author is intent upon. Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. He is from the line of David. Not of the tribe of Levi, but the tribe of Judah. So how can he serve as our high priest? If there is continuity between the office of priest in the Old Testament to the New Testament, how can Jesus fulfill this office if he doesn't come from the line of Aaron? This is a question that many Jews were asking even prior to the birth of Christ because they saw in the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would be a priest. So how could he fulfill this role of priest if he were to be the king? Some groups determined that there must therefore be two men who would come to be the Messiah. One who would be the king from the line of Judah, and one who would be a priest from the line of Levi. You see, continuity was very important to the people of God. You can't just throw out the requirements of the priesthood. And if you've not been appointed by God, then you're not a legitimate priest. This was made very clear in the early history of the priesthood of Aaron. During the 40-year wilderness wandering, a man named Korah led a rebellion against the exclusive priesthood of Aaron's line. Basically, he said, hey, we all can be priests. Why just Aaron and his sons? And he took to himself the role of a priest and sought to offer incense before the Lord. But the Lord punished Korah. For as we read in the book of Numbers chapter 16, the earth opened up and he fell down to his death and then fire descended from heaven and destroyed his co-conspirators. And then the Lord said, no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron shall draw near to burn incense before the Lord. Aaron and his sons alone are the priests. To be a priest, you must be appointed by God. And in the Word of God, Aaron and his sons were the ones who were given this office. So how can Christ be our priest? Well, look at verses 5 through 6. There we read this. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now in the coming weeks, we're going to learn all about Melchizedek. But for now, the important thing to note is that Jesus did not assume the role of priest on his own, but rather by God's direct appointment. He is not of the line of Aaron, rather he is a priest in the same manner that this man Melchizedek was a priest. This is the important point of continuity and discontinuity. 
The requirement of the priesthood remained. A priest must be appointed continuity. However, Scripture not only appoints Aaron and his sons, but also the promised Messiah to the priesthood. Discontinuity. The important point of continuity is not the heritage, it's not the genetics, rather it is the divine appointment. Psalm 2, which is quoted in verse 5, and Psalm 110, which is quoted in verse 6, point to the union of these two offices of king and priest in one promised Messiah. In Psalm 110, verse 1, we read that this Messiah will be a king. In the words, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, a sign of his kingly office. But then a few verses later of the same Messiah, it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And therefore, we can trust the Lord Jesus Christ to serve as our priest, to represent us, to offer a sacrifice for our sins, because God in his word declares that Christ has been divinely appointed to this office not overriding any of his divine requirements for priesthood, but rather fulfilling them completely. We can and we must trust Christ as our priest because God himself has appointed Christ to this office. He is our appointed representative. Now, when I was in school, I'd never enjoyed group projects. Anybody been a part of one of these group projects? The teacher puts you together with a couple other students, and together you are to prepare a paper or presentation of some sort. Inevitably, there's one person who wants to take complete control over the project, one person who doesn't want to do anything on the project and wants everybody else to do the work for them, and the rest of us who just want everyone to do their part well. Now, many times, unfortunately, I've found myself playing the first role. I wanted control because I did not trust the other members of the team to do a good job. I didn't trust that they would do the research or write their portion of the project or coherently communicate the information. I was not willing to be poorly represented and risk receiving a bad grade because somebody didn't do the work that I thought they should do. It's difficult to trust someone to represent you when you know that their actions or inactions will have a direct impact on your well-being, it's tempted to try to take control, to take over. There are times when you have no choice but to trust a representative, though. You cannot do the job of your employees, but their work will reflect on you. You cannot make your child behave better at school, but their poor behavior will make others judge your parenting. You cannot control the way that your neighbor keeps up their lawn, but if they fail to do regular maintenance, it will drive down the value of your home. And a priest is a representative. He is a part of the group, and he is appointed by God to act on behalf of the group. In particular, to make an offering for sin. And the Word of God teaches us that Jesus Christ has been appointed, has been chosen by God to fulfill the role 
to be our representative and to offer a sacrifice on our behalf, even his own life. And the question that Scripture asks of us is, are you willing to give up control of representing yourself to God? Of abandoning your own efforts to make yourself right before God? Of working to build your own case to earn forgiveness and righteousness before God? Or working to earn yourself a good grade before the Lord? Because there is no one who can represent themselves before the Lord. We are unable to do it. And therefore, we must hand over control of our eternal destiny, our representation before God, and trust that Jesus Christ is our representative. That is what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ. To trust Him as your priest. To trust in Him in His humanity, that He is one of us. To trust His sympathy, that He will take all who come to Him, no matter how weak and sinful. And to trust His divine appointment, that He has been chosen by God to offer the perfect and final sacrifice for sin, even His own blood. And the Word of God is asking you this morning, are you willing to trust Jesus Christ and His work alone? For us to trust in Christ, we must know that there is no one else among us that can do it. But if we place our full faith and trust in Him, then we will be accepted by God cleansed of our sin, saved through Christ alone. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we come to you now and we ask that you would give us that grace to have faith that Christ has represented us and that by His work we are accepted. By His sacrifice we are forgiven and cleansed. I pray, Lord, specifically if there is anyone here who feels as though their sin is keeping them from coming to Christ. They feel as though they are too weak, too sinful, too much baggage, too much garbage. They're can is overflowing and God will look at them and say, you have too much. You've overrun your allotted amount of sin. You cannot come to me. Oh God, would you show them that Christ is a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and sees it as his very job to heal the sick and to cleanse us from all of our sins. Give all who hear these words, even now, the faith to trust in Christ and through faith be saved. We pray this in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen.